It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. We've all seen the TV reporters with their masks now reporting from out on the street. Look really weird in the beginning. Doesn't look unusual now at all. But I noticed something yesterday with a couple of correspondents on MSNBC. And first of all, if you're standing outside a hospital or something, you should be wearing a face mask. That makes perfect sense. You're standing on a street corner somewhere. Uh, I don't know that you need it for the duration of the two-minute live shot. But what I noticed was... You know, everybody's got this sort of standard blue mask. Now I'm seeing one guy had a sort of a red and yellow mask, I'm seeing other colors. Somebody today had pink. So now it's becoming like a fashion statement. And you got to, of course, make sure that it matches your clothes. It's an accessory. I don't know. I think that's a little much. Uh, blue masks are fine. You don't have to, um, you know, I, you know it's, now there'll be designer masks, right? Like, why well, just have a plain old mask? Let's get like Ralph Lauren to uh, design it. Whatever. Okay. Netflix, apparently a lot of us are watching a whole lot of Netflix during this coronavirus period. Well, Netflix, just for the first three months of the year, added 16 million subscribers. 16 million subscribers. That's such an eye-popping figure that it's more than double what Netflix thought it would. And of course, it's all because of the coronavirus. I don't think this is necessarily good news for the nation's movie theaters, most of which have gone dark for this period. But when they eventually reopen, or a lot of people are just going to say, hey, you know, I'm a subscriber to Netflix now and I'll just look at the 500 things I can watch here and I don't have to go out and pay a babysitter and pay for popcorn. I'll make my own popcorn. Uh, another item, let me just switch screens here. This literally just broke moments ago. Uh, it's an announcement at Fox uh, for the Fox Corporation. And I would report this if any media company had done this. Uh, Lachlan Murdoch, who runs the company day to day, uh, is reporting that he, Rupert Murdoch, and three other top executives are going to just forego their salaries through the end of September. They're not going to take any money for their jobs to try to help the company through this difficult period. In addition, um, the top executive team at the next level down for the same period will reduce their salaries by 50%. And for a shorter period of time, uh, maybe about three months, May, June, July, yeah, um, anyone at the vice president level or above will reduce their salaries by 15%. And the idea uh, is about 700 people affected by this to not have to uh, start cutting pay for people at lower levels, you know, many of whom may still make a, a, a lot of money. Uh, and so that's leading by example. Uh, and, you know, if other companies uh, want to do something like that, the people who are most able to take the hit, who, you know, make um, very large sums of money, and I'm not saying they don't deserve it, but uh, the Murdochs uh, and others on, on the team setting an example. Uh, this didn't get much attention, but MSNBC anchor Katie Turr had put up a Twitter post. You, you probably heard sometime uh, on Monday or yesterday uh, U.S. intelligence officials say Kim Jong-un may be in grave condition, but North Korea was denying that. So she tweeted out that according to a couple of officials that she had spoken to, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is brain dead, according to two uh, U.S. officials. This con- NBC confirms and adds to CNN scoop. CNN had a, uh, reported the grave danger formulation. But then Katie Turd deleted the tweet, saying, I've deleted that last tweet out of an abundance of caution, waiting on more info, apologies. Well, the, the abundance of caution should come before you tweet out something that basically says somebody's essentially dead. Uh, 
and not afterwards. You know, maybe he will turn out to be true. But at this point, we don't know. Um, this is the story. Remember, I mean, Trump loves to use this phrase, Russia, Russia, Russia. Well, the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is a Republican-controlled committee, Richard Burr, Republican senator from North Carolina, as the chairman, has just put out a bipartisan report saying that the U.S. intel community was right in concluding that the Russian government interfered in the 2016 presidential election with the goal of helping Donald Trump to win. Uh, the intel, this was an assessment from back in 2017 that this included specific intelligence reporting to support the assessment that assessment that Putin and the Russian government demonstrated a preference for candidate Trump and the fact that Putin himself, this is according to the committee, approved and directed aspects of the Kremlin's interference efforts. Uh, this, of course, is part of the overall story that Trump has called a hoax. I mention it just because, you know, it's been reported. I've seen newspaper stories on it. I've seen, uh, you know, segments on it on television. But it's sort of like in other news, this happened. Because, you know, at this point, it's, it feels like an, an echo of the distant past. You know, Russia, you know, not that it wasn't important. Not that it didn't get overplayed by the media. You know, all the things that we said, all the debates that we did, the Mueller report, But now we got the coronavirus. And so this is just sort of like a footnote in history. Uh, Another interesting story going around here is um, Donald Trump's family wants to break, uh, wants a break, a reduction on the monthly rent that it pays. This is the Trump organization to lease what is called the Trump International Hotel here in Washington. Uh, most locals still call it the old post office building because that's what it was. It was renovated uh, before Trump. And of course, he did a beautiful job, you know, in turning it into a world-class hotel. But now, not that many people are gone because not that many people are traveling, not that many people are staying in hotels. So the Trump administration, here's its side, simply wants the GSA, the General Services Administration, to consider granting it relief similar to other federal tenants who may have caught a break in their rent because I guess this is leased on uh, some long-term lease from the GSA, because of the massive economic uh, turndown. Here is uh, Eric Trump in a statement saying, just treat us the same. Whatever that may be is fine. That's an interesting question. People are going to say favoritism, but if every other federal tenant gets a break, then is the Trump organization um, not entitled to that as well? And I talked yesterday about this sort of clickbait story that Politico and others have been running. There was a drudge headline. You know, uh, Democrats want Michelle Obama to be Joe Biden's running mate. And I, it's a clickbait story because it's not going to happen. She has no interest in it. She says she's never going to run for office. She did her eight years in the White House. She does not want to do it. But Joe Biden is riding the wave, which is smart politics. He did an interview with uh, Pittsburgh radio station KDKA in which he said about the possibility of Michelle as the potential number two, I'd take her in a heartbeat. She's brilliant. She knows the way around. She's a really fine woman. The Obamas are great friends. But then he says, I don't think she has any desire to live near the White House again. Of course, she'd go into the vice presidential mansion where Biden lived for eight years. So Barack Obama would be back in government housing, except this is never going to happen. All right, let's get serious here, folks, with story number one. So I made a very big deal yesterday, and I have a column today on foxnews.com, and I'm getting hammered by uh, the MAGA types who say, well, it's a great thing that President Trump is doing by uh, shutting down legal immigration. And I'm not opposed to it. I just said if it was you know, for health reasons, I'd understand. If it's to protect American jobs, it's politically smart. And in fact, I said in this column, if you want to accuse President Trump of playing politics with the pandemic, 
by doing something that he kind of wanted to do anyway, and certainly his top aide on immigration, Stephen Moore, um, excuse me, Stephen Miller, wanted to do anyway, um, then do so. But the Democrats do the same thing. In the negotiations over the, uh, the bailout bill, the Democrats had this whole wish list of environmental stuff and workplace stuff, and, you know, they mostly had to give it up because that's not how you get a bill through. So what happened last night at the briefing is the president, having that morning tweeted that he's putting a freeze on, on all legal immigration uh, for an undeterred period of time. Well, by the time he announced it, he said, A, it will last for 60 days and then we'll reevaluate. And also he said that it will only be for green card holders. It will be a 60-day freeze on processing green card applications. So he backed down, according to his New York Times story, after the business community went nuts because you'll have this other category of temporary workers. They get, they get visas to come here and work in these various jobs, and Trump excluded them. Now, why did he do that? Uh, let's see here. Um, the president said, first of all, by pausing immigration, we'll help put unemployed Americans first in line for jobs as America reopened. So important. It would be wrong and unjust for Americans laid off by the virus to be replaced with new immigrant labor flown in from abroad. I don't have any problem with that. I think it makes a lot of sense. Lawyers of the Justice Department are still studying whether he has any authority to do this. As is typical, he blindsided the, the Pentagon. He blindsided Homeland Security, according to people with knowledge of the announcement. But it's the guest worker program is what it's called. The decision not to block guest workers programs which, according to the Times, provide, as we know, provide specific visas for tech workers. That's the first thing I thought of. The high-tech industry depends on these people. Farm laborers and others, and the president kept saying last night, we're not going to do anything that affects farmers, is a concession to business groups which assailed the White House yesterday. President of the Information Technology Industry Council said that the United States will not benefit from shutting down legal immigrations. Um, and by Tuesday afternoon, that's yesterday, uh, after the backlash for business, officials acknowledged that devising an order that would apply to some guest workers and not others would just be too complicated. So Trump threw it out, and it's only green cards. And that shows you what happens when you come under political pressure. Story number two. Uh, the director of the CDC uh, did a long interview with the Washington Post. Robert Redfield is his name. And the head of the Centers for Disease Control Prevention said, according to this story, that even as the states, and particularly led by some of the southern states, are moving forward with plans to reopen their economies, he says that a second wave of the coronavirus will be far more dire because it will likely con- coincide with the start of the flu season. Here's the quote. There's a possibility that the assault of the virus on our nation next winter will actually be even more difficult than the one we just went through. And when I've said this to others, they kind of put their head back. They don't understand what I mean. Okay, what do you mean? We're going to have the flu epidemic, the normal seasonal flu outbreak, and the coronavirus epidemic at the same time. Having both of those at the same time, we don't have that now because it's not flu season. This, says Redfield, would put unimaginable strain on the healthcare system. Because by itself, the, this first wave of COVID-19, you know, certainly we had the problem with ventilators and respirators and hospital beds, now largely under control, but it put a tremendous strain, particularly in hard-hit places like New York City. Um, and so um, Redfield said that if we've got that and the flu at the same time, 
because once the stay-at-home orders are lifted, I mean, everyone thinks that there'll be a, now thinks there'll be a second wave. Um, asked about the president's asked about the protest, which the president kind of supported in those liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota tweets, and calls on calling on states to be liberated from restrictions. Redfield said, "It's not helpful." He obviously is challenging the president on this, but he's doing so in a respectful way. It's not helpful. Meanwhile, the federal agency led by uh, Anthony Fauci, who's probably the most respected medical guy in America right now, issued guidelines yesterday saying there is no proven drug for treating coronavirus patients. Fauci had sort of been a naysayer or certainly casting cold water on this hydroxychloroquine, which the president was talking up for days and days. And what he said was, look, I don't know if it's going to work, but we should test it, and it has been tested. So now the results of a study of the 360 VA patients posted yesterday, but not yet peer-reviewed, found that hydroxychloroquine, which is an approved drug for malaria and other diseases, with or without a second drug, did not help patients who have the virus avoid the need for ventilators. And hydroxychloroquine alone was associated with an increased risk of death. So a lot of people are saying, I told you so, Trump uh, jumped the gun, he shouldn't be promoting this. He hasn't talked much about this in recent days. He was asked about it last night. He said he hadn't seen the study. He wants to take a look. He said, well, there's been a lot of good studies. Maybe this one is not so good. Uh, It wasn't a controlled trial. So the patients who received this were sicker to begin with. Nevertheless, according to this one study, and Fauci, you know, is, is embracing this, it does not help and because this drug has risks, has side effects associated with it, it could actually hurt people who take it by itself uh, who are suffering from the disease. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, story number three. Going back to the protests, which have sprung up not just in those original states, but in a bunch of states, um, including uh, red states and blue states, I believe. So Washington Post has a take on this saying that it starts off by talking about ads on Facebook. The people are rising up against these insane shutdowns. We're fighting back to demand that our elected officials reopen America. And by the way, some of the shutdown, lockdown stuff does go too far. I mean, saying that stores, big stores can't have a section for gardening or for furniture, for, you can't buy baby seats. I mean, I don't blame people for being upset about that. But what this story says that these protests out in the streets, are not just a grassroots uprising. They may may well be that. They are that. But there's an uh, initiative of of an outfit called Convention of States. Uh, And this reflects a wide-ranging and well-financed conservative campaign, says the Post, to undermine restrictions that medical experts say are necessary to contain the coronavirus. Now, the Convention of States launched back in 2015 with a lot of money from Robert Mercer. He's a billionaire hedge fund manager and big-time Republican patron. His family gave a lot of money to Breitbart, especially when Steve Bannon was there. Uh, In the past, this group, this Convention of States, has been uh, supported by Ken Cuccinelli, now the acting director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, and Ben Carson, now, of course, the secretary of HUD. Uh, it also has been endorsed in the past by Ron DeSantis, who's now the GOP Republican of, uh, governor of Florida and a close Trump ally. So here's a uh, comment from the board president of Citizens for Self-Governance, which is the parent group of this Convention for States. I know it's a lot of names being tossed around. We're providing a digital platform, says Eric O'Keefe, for people to plan and communicate about what they're doing. O'Keefe himself uh, 
was a supporter of David Koch's 1980 bid for the White House. He ran as the vice presidential running mate for Koch back in 1980. Quote, to shut down our rural counties because what's going on in New York City, or in some sense Milwaukee, is draconian, says O'Keefe. He happens to live in Wisconsin. Um, And here, by the way, is a quote from uh, Bill Barr, speaking to a conservative radio host, Hugh Hewitt, yesterday about the Justice Department. He says... Some of these restrictions put on by the governors go too far, and the DOJ will consider supporting lawsuits against these restrictions. Wow. So on the one hand, you have Trump, the president, saying for now, I support social distancing. Maybe that changes after April 30th. Uh, I support, you know, the shutdowns. It's up to the governors. And you have his own attorney general saying, we may, we may go to court to support efforts. Uh, to be sure, they're saying... Um, uh, Barr is saying we would do this against uh, restrictions that we believe go too far and infringe on civil liberties. But the president said, I'm going to let the governors call the shots. And his own AG, I don't know, if will he actually do this? Is just, just sending a signal? We'll have to say. We'll have to see. Time will tell. All right, folks, story number four. Jonah Goldberg in National Review. A rock rib conservative, longtime conservative commentator, Fox News contributor, uh, not a big fan of Donald Trump, but he is talking about these protests as well. It's getting a lot of attention, and it's understandable. He says, when it comes to these protests, can we not be idiots about it? Okay, so Stephen Moore, economic advisor to Trump, uh, who's actually on this uh, you know, committee to study re- reopening the country. He was, Stephen Moore, you may know him, used to be a CNN contributor. Uh, he used to appear on Fox a lot at various times. And he was the nominee for the Federal Reserve Board, but withdrew after he got all kinds of flack for his nomination. So he has said, and I still can't believe he said this, I call these people, talking about the protesters who are going out, sometimes not practicing social distancing, to overturn these state restrictions. I call them modern-day Rosa Parks. They're protesting injustice and a loss of liberties. All right, so here's Jonah. Many have noted the bizarreness of a presidential advisor and average Trump supporter a man who sits on the president's movable feast of a committee to reopen the economy, also serving as an organizer of protests against policies Trump himself has advocated. So there are separate stories. I believe there's one in the New York Times saying Steve Moore is helping to, he's not the, 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 the brains behind it, but he's helping to help organize these protests. Look, if that's what he believes, fine. But he is, in a way, contradicting the policies of the president he supports. That contradiction, says Jonah, matches the president's own inconsistent behavior. He talks about, you know, all the things that we've discussed on the podcast in recent days and weeks. The president said he had total authority over the states. Then he said the governors will call the shots. The president said um, the states have to take the lead on testing, even though testing is important, and round and round and round. Jonah Goldberg says if Trump actually believed these states were in need of liberation, he could do something about it. Places in, places in need of liberation suffer from tyranny. And the president has a constitutional obligation to ensure that American citizens do not ensure tyranny, endure tyranny, excuse me. And he goes back to, you know, Eisenhower sent troops to Little Rock to enforce desegregation of schools and other examples from history where this has gone on. He says, look, the president, if he really believed it was tyranny, if he wasn't just saying, well, I think some of these go too far, he could take action as the commander-in-chief. So, the comparison with Rosa Parks, the Jim Crow system that she defied and became a major figure in history because of her defiance as one woman on a bus, 
um, it codified the notion that some Americans were fundamentally inferior to other Americans. The notion that some citizens don't share the same constitutional rights as others is by definition tyrannical. In other words, she was fighting racism. Nothing like that is happening here, says Jonah Goldberg. He says, look, I'm willing to concede that some of the governors have made mistakes, banning, banning Michiganders from purchasing, purchasing gardening equipment and car seats for babies strikes me as heavy-handed. It's not a complete ban, but it is a restriction. But this Rosa Parks comparison is grotesque in its asininity. That's the word that Jonah would use. I probably wouldn't use it. But he's saying it's asinine. Unlike the quarantine protesters, Parks wasn't fighting to regain temporarily suspended liberties, but liberties many Americans had never fully enjoyed, in other words, black Americans. She was a nonviolent warrior in the struggle to guarantee you the rights and dignity of all Americans. The quarantines are grounded in a different understanding that we all deserve protection from a virus that disproportionately strikes our most vulnerable citizens and is now the second leading cause of death in America, closing in on heart disease. So, he says, this is a good line, if you could ask the founding fathers what what we're going through now with the shutdowns as tyranny, their answer collectively would be, are you high? Or whatever the colonial era equivalent was. All right, story number five. Harvard University is just getting the stuffing kicked out of it for doing something I think is pretty stupid. And President Trump had something to say about this last night. Harvard says it plans to keep an $8.6 million grant it got as part of the stimulus package, the $2 trillion plus uh, deal. Now, Harvard is not an institution that we think of as uh, needing uh, any kind of federal bailout money. Not to mention that Harvard has a private endowment, all these rich donors and alumni who put up money to help run that prestigious institution. It's more than $40 billion dollars. So Harvard doesn't really need the $8 million. It's got $40 billion in the bank in this endowment. And what the president said is, my exact words, Harvard is, well, he said Harvard is going to pay back the money and they shouldn't be taking it, noting that Harvard has one of the largest endowments in the country, maybe in the world. So here's Harvard's statement. But Harvard doesn't understand when a PR beating it is taking over this, even though it's a little more complicated. So Harvard, first of all, says that it didn't apply for the small business loans, it simply received, um, like other institutions, and I guess like other colleges, um, a program that is designed to help colleges. And it says, we're not going to use this to run the school. 100% of this money, this $8 million bucks, is going to go to financial assistance to students. We'll not be covering any funds to, we'll not be using any funds to cover institutional costs. So, okay, I, But then you have to say, look, obviously there are scholarship students at Harvard. Not everybody goes to Harvard as rich, but certainly as a a whole, it has a more affluent student body than many smaller schools and many schools that are struggling, historically black colleges, whatever. So if you go into the fine print, Harvard can say, look, we didn't ask for this money. We got it automatically. We're not using it for ourselves. We're giving it to students who need financial assistance. That makes sense. But that's going to be just completely drowned out by Harvard, $8 million in taxpayer money, $40 billion endowment. And you know what? Why doesn't Harvard take the $8 million out of its own $40 billion plus endowment and use that for additional financial assistance to students and let the taxpayer money be go to an institution that needs it more badly? It's just an absolute public relations black eye that Harvard didn't need. 
I don't know. I mean, is the president going to stay on this? Is he going to use the power of his office to pressure Harvard into giving up this money? If you're advising Harvard, if you're like a PR person, would you say, you know what? The hell with the president. The hell with all this bad press. We're entitled to this money. Let's just keep it and we'll give it to, to these uh, needy students. No, you would say, give the money back. I mean, Shake Shack gave the money back. Shake Shack, you know, pretty profitable chain, got 10 million bucks under the small business loans, which can be turned into grants if you do certain things to keep employees on your payroll. Shake Shack gave the money back. And I say that if Shake Shack, purveyor of hamburgers and uh, milkshakes, can give the money back, then so can the folks in Cambridge at Harvard University. We had a lot to talk about today. I'm trying to sort of cram more and more into these podcasts because there's so many stories, some of them important, some of them not so important, some of them merely enlightening or even entertaining to keep all of our collective spirits up, spirits up during this coronavirus situation. And we'll continue to uh, look at it. I say to all of you, stay safe. I hope you are doing well. I hope you are getting relief if you are in economic hardship. I hope for the sake of all of us that some of these states can gradually reopen. But let's face it, New York, New Jersey, Illinois, Connecticut, California, Washington State, it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time to reopen the businesses in a way where people will feel comfortable enough to go patronize them because you can open all the businesses you want. If folks aren't going to the stores and the movie theaters and um, they don't feel comfortable because they look at the death toll, which is still considerable, the curve may have been flat, but the curve is still pretty damn high, then I think it's going to be hard to bring these businesses back. And that's what we all want. We hope you'll subscribe. Try Apple iTunes. It's an easy way to get the podcast or foxnewspodcast.com. We'll see you tomorrow with more buzzers. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.